This week's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Arizona. See why wonder makes us who we are at wonder.arizona.edu. And Lowy Law Firm. Adam Lowy created his firm with a bold new vision. Explore how they help injured Texans at loweylawfirm.com. Hello, and welcome to the June 10th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> we're Sorry, are we interrupting something, Jolie? Do we, <laughs> I wasn't busy? Busy? I forgot it was my turn already. <laughs> I, <wasn't. laughs> I have switched the order. I, 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 I try to surprise people. Uh, managing editor Matthew Watkins, whose hair is growing in very nicely. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for noticing. Sure, in the ball cap, though. <laughs> yeah, he still tries to cover it most of the time. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Hello, Ross. All right. So let's start this week by actually backing up to the end of last week when we reported on some racist social media posts by local GOP officials. Matthew, you get to do the honors here. <laughs> Go oh ahead. Fill yeah, okay. So I'll kind of walk uh, our listeners through the kind of how we experienced this, because it was kind of just crazy how this unfolded. Um, on Thursday, um, or sometime kind of later in la- last week, uh, Cynthia Brim, the uh, GOP chair in Bear County, uh, someone who has a reputation for, you know, buying into conspiracy theories, um, you know, saying things that might not be true. Um, earlier uh, this spring, you know, made news for say, declaring that the coronavirus was a hoax perpetrated perpetrated by Democrats to um, damage Donald Trump's reelection chances. Um, word started spreading around that she was now uh, promoting another conspiracy theory on Facebook in which she basically said that, um, you know, uh, George Floyd's death was staged in order to, you know, basically kind of trick black people into not supporting Donald Trump because, as she said, uh, his support among black people was rising. Um, This, you know, made its rounds. It it appeared to be this kind of isolated, like, situation of of a local GOP official doing something crazy. Um, Governor Abbott uh, called for her resignation, along with a bunch of other kind of um, Republican uh, statewide and and prominent Republicans in the legislature. Um, But as that whole story was kind of developing, we then found out that uh, Jim Kalin from Nueces County, um, also the GOP chair, had posted something similar on his site, um, on his Facebook page, I mean. Uh, Keith Nilsson, um, Harris County GOP chair-elect, had posted a MLK quote on his Facebook page um, with a the image of a banana next to it, um, a clearly racist thing to do. Um, Sue Piner from Kamal County and Lee Lester from Harrison County also perpetuating this kind of hoax thing. So basically, by the end of the day Thursday, we were all kind of standing there stunned looking at, you know, five local GOP chairs have have done this, you know, in the span of basically 24 hours. Um, 
The next day, we then realized that Sid Miller, statewide elected official, agriculture commissioner, has been posting on his Facebook page um, claims that uh, basically George Soros paid for the death of George Floyd and has been paying protesters to protest. Basically, that this was some kind of huge hoax by Soros. Um, Sid Miller called Soros evil on one of these pages um, and, you know, various other kind of inflammatory uh, remarks, you know, um, kind of pulling on what has long been kind of a, um, you know, situation where these kind of conspiracy theorists, theories of George Soros are perpetrated. Um, you know, he is a prominent uh, Jewish businessman. It kind of calls to mind a lot of the kind of anti-Semitic tropes that have been around for a long time about, um, you know, claims of Jewish people controlling certain things behind the string scenes and stuff like that. And then on Friday, um, some of our staff members went through the other GOP uh, chairman's uh, pages on Facebook on our site and found seven more who had perpetuated, you know, similar kind of racist, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories surrounding this George Floyd thing, um, these protests around his death and things like that. Um, so that ended up being basically 12 local GOP county chairs and a GOP state official, um, you know, basically kind of an alarming amount of Republican elected leaders, um, you know, saying things that are, you know, not true, uh, perpetrating hoaxes and, you know, many of which were just downright racist. Yeah. I mean, I think what was illustrative of, out of this was the GOP's problems with racism, right? Like you had these high-ranking officials who did very quickly disown these local county chairs, you know, at first called for some resignations. And it was a sort of, you know, this is out of line with the Republicans' party's values messaging that they've used before, that in a lot of ways cast some of these things as one-offs. But then we found seven more. And as far as I know, the calls for resignation have not spread from the initial set of them. Sure. They, I think they kind of eventually reached a point where they stopped calling for individual resignations. And of course, you know, Sid Miller has a history of saying things like this, and there have not been calls for him to resign, too. Um, you know, I think uh, it's, you know, pe people, there are crazy people out there who promote crazy ideas all the time. Like that's, you know, and sometimes when you see like one or two people, you know, connected to politics, you can see that and kind of dismiss it. But 12, you know, 12 is a lot. And you know, I think it's hard not to look at this and see a bigger problem in the Republican Party, particularly among, you know, the kind of base of this party the, that has, you know, been talking about and promoting a lot of conspiracy uh, theories like this in the past. And of course, you know, we've seen at times the leaders of the parties doing certain things like this. I mean, it's no secret, you know, what we've seen from the president, you know, surrounding the deep state and, and you know, what he's tweeting every day. You know, the, it calls to mind some of the um, Jade Helm stuff that happened surrounding Abbott, um, you know, however many years ago that was. Um, you know, it's... it's, it's I, I don't think this is something that Republicans particularly want to talk about right now, but I think it's something that you know, deserves a little bit of introspection from the folks in that party and, and kind of questions by people outside the party about what's going on here and, and what can be done to kind of get control of this.
Well, and you said that you don't think they really want to talk about it. And I'm sure like that's part of why they haven't, you know, routinely been like, okay, now you should resign and now you should resign and now you should resign. Like they, they addressed it and they want to move on. Um, But it's something that, you know, it's yeah, 12 people. I mean, how do you move on from that? These are people in high ranking positions. So, I mean, I think you cannot look at the GOP's recent history in Texas to see that they have had problems with, to put it lightly, the words that they use, right? Like when you think about specifically around race, there was state rep Rick Miller more than suggesting his opponents had only decided to challenge him because they are Asian. The the statement from one of his the statement about one of his opponent opponents who was former Fort Bend GOP chairman J C Jeden was he's a Korean he has decided because he is an Asian that my district might need an Asian to win and that's kind of racist in my mind but anyway that's not necessary at least not yet I'm not going to do dramatic readings of all of these but you know the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has been talking about quote illegal invasion since his 2014 campaign. Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller has compared Syrian refugees to snakes. He told someone on Facebook at one point to get a rope. Then Governor Greg Abbott used the same term. And yes, yes, pay salsa commercial and all of that. But the use of it both now and in the commercial made light of the lynching of black people. And, you know, even if you look at last year, you know, in a fundraising appeal sent out the day before the El Paso shooting, Abbott spoke in these sort of alarmist terms about needing to, you know, quote, defend Texas at the border and needing to send, quote, a message unless Republicans wanted liberals to, quote, transform Texas through illegal immigration. And, you know, I think about how following the El Paso massacre in particular, Texas Republicans were pressured to find the words with which to talk about and confront, you know, racism, bigotry, and white supremacy really in ways most of them hadn't in recent history. And I think you're seeing that again now, but it seems that it's really only in the aftermath of these horribly egregious tragedies involving black and Hispanic people that they actually get there. You know, the context changes, you know, the way people kind of perceive themselves. And, you know, I mean, this looks, the things that they're saying are just as bad before the George uh, Floyd killing as they are after, but the context has changed. And now that everybody is looking at this in a political context, instead of that's just the way those people are, um, you've got a, a political spin on this that you don't necessarily have all the time. You know, the, the Republicans, I think, you know, to a great extent, this kind of stuff has been kind of acceptable and accepted inside the party. If only, you know, if only in one group of it, um, I don't think it's everybody in the Republican Party, but the context right now is um, this shall not stand. And so you've got this process of the other Republicans and certainly everybody outside of the Republican Party pointing to these cases and saying this has to stop, this has to stop, this has to stop and going down the list um, in a way that they don't nor- normally do. And so if we if we think about this in the political t- context, right, like moving aside from just like basic morality on what is right and what isn't, if you do think about this in, in that political context, you know, we have seen in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, 
as GOP officials in particular have navigated the use of their words, like many have also pointed out to their actions. Like one one thing I've seen multiple times, particularly from Democrats, is mentions of SB4, the anti-sanctuary, the quote anti-sanctuary cities bill, you know, and the amendment that allowed police officers to question the immigration status of anyone they detained, even during routine traffic stops, and the concerns that they had raised about racial profiling that could come from it. And, you know, we've also seen the reactions by GOP leaders to these Facebook posts, but you haven't seen the same sort of outcry when the president is the one making those comments, right? Like from when he was casting Mexicans as rapists and criminals to his racist go back comments about for Congresswomen, I think that was last year. And so when, when you think about the gap between what they're doing now to what they've done before and what that means politically, particularly for November, how is a voter supposed to make sense of this? And not like a base voter that votes in every single Republican primary, but the voters that, you know, it, to some people are the ones who could make a difference this November. We get, they got to look at each one of these people and say, did their heart change or did their politics change? You know, you mentioned Sid Miller a minute ago has done these kinds of things over and over again and has continued to. So there's no change there. But the reactions to some of these guys has changed. And you're getting reactions to some of this kind of behavior from people you didn't used to get reactions to this behavior from before. They're suddenly allergic. Um, and they're jumping into these in opposition to some of the things that are being said, particularly to the list of people that Matthew was talking about, the, the county Republican chairs, in a way that they wouldn't have before George Floyd. And you've got to ask yourself, each voter has to decide whether those changes or that opposition is in the heart or in the, or coming from a poll. Yeah, you know, I, I think like I I always kind of go back to the suburbs, um, which because I I think it's such an important place in Texas this election. You know, um, whether it's whether uh, how the state will vote as a whole, but even more importantly, in the efforts to flip the state house, a lot of those districts are in the suburbs, and you know, I think you've seen, um, you know. Republicans lose a ton of ground there in recent years. And a lot of it, I think people kind of speculate that it's, um, you know, people out in the suburbs who don't necessarily want to be associated with this side of the Republican Party right now. And when you see something like this with this widespread amount, you know, it really heightens that concern and, and, and can kind of affect how a party is perceived and which can affect kind of the voting habits. Um, so I think in that regard, it's important. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, many of the Republican leaders might, you know, uh, feel a need to like have that not define their, what their party is, aside from the, you know, plain like moral reasons that you don't want, you know, racists in your party. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous tight walk because the, um, they're always worried about that kind of like denunciation, particularly from their president. If you come out and, you know, say certain words that he says uh, they didn't like, they, they always worry about that Trump tweet that comes back and shoots them and hurts them politically. And so I think, uh, you know, I, I'm almost kind of at a loss for like analysis to put in this. I mean, it's uh, 
it's it's troubling to see this large of a portion, you know, this this large of numbers, you know, coming out and saying these things. But it it is, you know, somewhat reflective of the political reality that we're in right now. All right. Well, before we move on to our next topic, I will one point out that the suburbs have traditionally been in question in a lot of ways because of white suburban women, but the suburbs are also becoming increasingly diverse, right? And you, and this is an issue that is kind of cutting across the two sort of types of voters that could actually make a difference. Okay, I was actually going to go to our sponsors, but uh, you know, I write about demographics, so I felt the need to get. <laughs> okay, let's first, go to but two first more. A word from our host. Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to two more of our sponsors. The Poinsett Firm is an Austin-based lobby firm guiding businesses in solving their high-stakes problems at the Texas Capitol. Learn more at poinsett.co. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. Find out more at raiseyourhandtexas.org. So let's turn to the policy part of the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Obviously, there are ongoing conversations about the possibility of reform, but let's start with what Texas has or really hasn't done at the state level in this regard. Jolie, you had a story this morning on the governor's recent comments on Floyd's death in light of his silence on previous police killings in the state and inaction by the state legislature. Lay this one out for us. (laughs) Hello to Jolie. Well, <laughs> Jolie's whole office is going to work on this one. <laughs> oh, we're totally keeping this in. We're not. We're totally keeping this in. Um, I was giving space, and even so, we could cut it out. Um, well, so starting with what Abbott has said in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, he has been speaking at press conferences, on TV interviews, he's been tweeting um, about how we can't let this happen ever in Texas, um, which, you know, it has. There have been multiple high-profile police killings here in the state, and they some of which have resulted in murder convictions, others that are still under investigation and have intense scrutiny. Um, but in this, he hasn't been mentioning those cases, but what he has been doing is he's been um, celebrating Texas's past reforms when it comes to criminal justice efforts. Um, he, you know, Texas loves to pride itself on being like a leader in criminal justice reform because um, that is often a bipartisan move. It's not necessarily one party or the other that pushes for those types of changes. Um, but he mentioned he's been mentioning things like, you know, we've closed some prisons in the last few years. We have a high rate of or high number of people exonerated who are cleared of wrongful convictions. Um, and he mentions the Sandra Bland Act. But what he doesn't mention is that a lot of police reforms specifically have fallen flat at the Capitol because they have a lot of opposition from law enforcement, specifically from top unions, um, and including the Sandra Bland Act that started out in 2017 after the death of Sandra Bland as having a lot of um, provisions about investigating cases or potential racial profiling, um, suspending officers who are found to repeatedly 
engage in racial profiling, um, things like implicit bias training. There was a lot more on police efforts and what it all ultimately came down to was that wasn't moving anywhere because of opposition and it got stripped down to largely a mental health and a jail reform bill. Um, and efforts last year to kind of come back at that uh, where they were saying, okay, but we need to put some of these provisions back in. Let's try again. Um, limiting arrests for offenses where even if you are found guilty of it, you're not going to be sentenced to jail, like traffic tickets, things like that. Um, they still failed. Um, and again, it was actually, it was an insane back and forth in the house. Um, it this failed. This is a bizarre one where it like failed and then it didn't fail. And there was a... Many times in, I love, I love this one of the, the one of the people in the article, in my article who I talked to yesterday said it was killed spectacularly because <laughs> it was so back and forth. Um, actually two of them, there was also another police issue was the quote, dead suspects bill, which gets into closing a loophole where police can withhold information from the public into investigations where a person hasn't been adjudicated, even if that is because the person died in police custody. Um, also failed multiple times in a variety of ways. Um, so that's just this absent part of this conversation is okay, how do we move forward, though? Because they've tried things like this in the past and they've gotten nowhere. Yeah, this this rings, you know, from, from in terms of the void in policy, either from Sandra Bunn's death or from the shootings that we have seen come after that, it does sort of ring similar to what organizers have been saying about what it took for many people who aren't Black to actually pay attention, right? Like, both of John's death in Dallas was terrible. A Tatiana Jefferson's death in Fort Worth was terrible. And I'm not sure that, I, I mean, I don't remember hearing the sort of same outcry and or even remarks from the governor. And, you know, I, I don't think that the governor wasn't paying attention, right? You know, it seems like this is the sort of thing that does rise to the level of the governor's desk in some way. But it those deaths, did not lead him and really other elected officials to actually act. And I think that as we like move and approach the legislative session, which is going to be drowned out by so many crucial issues, particularly in light of the pandemic, I, you know, I, I do think that it's, if I'm an organizer or someone who has been working on this issue, is there really a path forward here when nothing has happened before? Or is the possibility of reform that organizers feel actually applicable to the Capitol as well? Let me sound a little bit cynical for a minute. You know, the, the legislature doesn't pay attention to the public unless the public is wound up about something. And if the public isn't speaking about something or pressing for some result or some resolution to something, the only people at the Capitol really talking are special interests. And in this case, the special interests are the police associations and law enforcement associations. And the legislators always hear from them. They're hearing from them now. But the public is aroused and making noise. And any politician looks at that and says, those are the people who elect me. I need to listen to them. If you get to January of 2021 and the legislative session starts and the public that is 
making noise and demonstrating and unified in that way right now about police reforms isn't there, then you're going to get the same result you've always got. If the public stays in the game, then you'll get a different result. It's like that on everything. But right now, the the thing that we're um, talking about, because it's in the mind of the public and because it's got, you know, it's sort of manifest in all these demonstrations and all the news and all the conversation turns their heads. I mean, I will say that there are still people who have been pushing for this, like the opposition, I guess, the opposing side to the police unions that they just don't have the same, they don't carry the same weight with lawmakers, I think. Yeah, I would wager that, you know, Abbott, uh, even Dan Patrick, you, you know, people in going into the next legislative session will identify some kind of response, some kind of reform efforts as a priority going in and that there will be a big push to get it through. I think the question is, is what ends up getting through, if something gets through, going to be what the people out protesting in the streets want it to be. And I think the, you know, this, the Sandra Bland Act is a very good example of this, right? Where this was a case that prompted a lot of outcry. Um, there was a legislative response, but by the time that bill made it all the way through, it was completely watered down. But they still passed a bill called the Sandra Bland Act, which, you know, uh, well, her family didn't yeah, like that bill. The family, you know, by the end had pulled its support for it. But you can still now have all these state leaders going out right now saying, what have you done about this? Saying we passed the Sandra Bland Act. And if you didn't follow the twists and turns of that legislation, your response to that is, oh, great. Like, look, they have already done things. And, you know, so, you know, will that be some kind of comprehensive bill? I don't know. You know, one thing that Abbott has raised, talked about a lot so far has been training, Um you know, but I, I think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Julie, but I think a lot of the people pushing re for reform, uh, you know, protesting, things like that are go going to want to see more than, than just training. Yeah. So when I heard him talking about that again on the TV last night, and it was interesting to me because so one of the, the questions here are how much are state leaders going to stand up to, you know, they might have to push for some things that the unions aren't going to like. Um, and when I was talking to the one of the union officials yesterday for the story when i said what are some reforms that you would support he, that the first thing that came out of his mouth was training so that was like it's it's it seems like an easy like sure we did something but i don't know i don't think that's really what that's going to solve the problem here or it's going to appease the crowds the two legislators that are working this, John Whitmire and Garnet Coleman, among others, there, there are some other legislators in this as well, have a bunch of experience. And I think one of the ways that you see their experience coming to the front is that they're trying to lock people into a position now while the public is excited about this and paying attention to this and while everybody's watching so that maybe they have a little bit of, you know, this one and that one and the other one all signed off on this legislation last summer and you get to January in the legislative session and you say, hey, you've already signed off on this. Let's go forward. Instead of waiting for the public clamor to die down for the special interests to reassert themselves and for the legislature to do what it's always done on this stuff. Yeah, I mean, both Whitmire and Coleman have said we're going to refile legislation to include all the things that were stripped out of the 2017 Sandra Bland Act. Um, it's just you know, things happen as you start with something and it always ends up very much watered down in things yeah. like this. A lot of the times by the end of May. 
there's a lot of opportunities to take what they file and, and yeah. change it between yeah uh, there and Abbott's desk. Well, and and just to like bring up Matthew's favorite subject, like if the House were to flip, and Democrats see that as an opening to push for legislation that checks off all the boxes that they want, does that go even farther than like a quote unquote compromise bill? in a split chamber in the House would go, and how does that go over in the Senate where the dynamics have not, will probably not change and where the presiding officer, you know, has gone on record in the past more than criticizing the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, I mean, I think the Senate is the big thing here. I, we haven't really heard, I mean, I know Dan Patrick has had a comment, not necessarily about legislation, but the big thing here is the House has passed a lot of reforms in the past um, in terms of criminal justice that then go to the Senate to very quickly and easily die. Um, and a lot of this is, you know, there's just not the same appetite for these types of things in the Senate. It's a more um, conservative chamber when it comes to criminal justice efforts, which do have these bipartisan support, but it's just, it's like, I don't know how to, it's like more of an old school conservative vibe over there. Um, and it doesn't, is that, is that fair? It doesn't, the, I mean, the Senate's, it, it the Senate's more of a beast. The Senate's more of a tool of its leader than the House is. The House is more, you know, has a lot more voices, has a lot more, you know, frankly, straight up democracy. And this isn't really a comment about Patrick. It's, you know, it's a long tradition of Texas lieutenant governors. They have a greater hand over there. And the Senate generally goes the way the lieutenant governor wants it to go. And he's clearly got a position in this stuff. I mean, so so given what we know about the Senate, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of organizers in the last week who have found in the protest, the pos- in the protests and their longevity and their skill, the possibility of basically turning those people into the sort of people who show up at a committee hearing, right, or a city council meeting. But, you know, I've, I've and others of you have sat through enough marathon legislative hearings where your guess on what the vote on a piece of legislation will be is no different at the start of it than after hundreds of people come out to testify against it. And so, you know, if we are talking about state lawmakers that are ultimately responding not to the testimony in front of them, but to what their local voters want or to what powerful groups like the police unions want. Is the actual path forward on real reform here local and not at the state level? It's in front of the politics. So, you know, classic, the classic idea here would be to get a set of ideas in front of voters, have the voters express support for those ideas in the election and send the people they elected into the legislature with those instructions. That's one of the reasons why the organizers around this, you know, honestly, on both sides, the people who want to change the way the police work and the people who don't are trying to get in front of this right now because we're very close to an election um, and we're very close to people on whatever side of this issue taking positions in that election that they'll be held to once they're elected. You know, I think one important uh, thing to point to uh, in terms of the local politics is the most recent Houston mayoral race, where um, Sylvester Turner was facing a lot of opposition from the firefighters union. 
You know, a lot of the fear among in the, at the local level is that if the police come up against you or these public safety employees come out against you, you know, that can really damage you if you're running a mayoral election or even a city council election. Sylvester Turner, you know, got into this big public fight with the firefighters over pay and kind of stood his ground. And he he survived and, and won re-election, you know, and I wonder how that will be looked at by, you know, other officials moving forward where there's this big rally. You know, is there going to be a little bit more confidence to kind of, you know, be opposed to them? I mean, that Houston mayoral race was was interesting because, you know, he was running against Tony Busby, a, a figure he could kind of pin as Trump-like. And there are a lot of different factors in that race. But it is one example of someone kind of getting into a fight with those public safety unions and, and coming out alive. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that comes that's been coming out of this is a question of, you know, some people like questioning why the police unions have so have as much power they as they do politically. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if that starts to shift um, as all of these, you know, calls for defunding police are now not like completely laughed out the door. Like look at Minneapolis. Um, so I think there will be, it'll be really interesting to see what happens locally in terms of ma like mayoral decisions, city council decisions, but also departmentally um, to see if some of these police chiefs um, make changes, what changes they make and if they actually enforce them and stick to it. Between now and the election, all those city councils are going to set their public safety budgets. You know, they're facing revenue losses because of the bad economy, the coronavirus, lost sales tax revenue, potentially lost property tax revenue. So they'd be looking for cuts anyway. And they've got all this pressure on doing doing something about the police. You know, all of that's going to be in the mix when you get to the elections. All right. Well, we are out of time for today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, the University of Arizona, the Lowy Law Firm, the Poinsett Firm, and Raise Your Hand Texas. On behalf of Jolie, Matthew, and Ross, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. Do I have to talk you